Now, our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 to 18, is focusing on the only appropriate audience for our deeds and our practices of religious devotion. Now, we took a little bit of a detour um, as we zoned in a little bit on the blessed template for prayer that has been given to us by our, by, set out by Jesus for the disciples. That prayer was given to the disciples, it was given to the eagerly listening crowds on that day, and it was given to us and to all who would love and serve him throughout history. So as we zoned in on the petitions of that prayer, we kind of got into some of the more specifics there, and now we take a step back out and we, uh, from our look at those specific petitions and once again explore the wider context for the words of Jesus in this passage. And those words, the wider context, is found in verse 1 of chapter 6. Beware of practicing your righteous deeds before other people in order to be seen by them. This is the major theme for this section. This is the major theme for the three subjects that Christ refers to in this section. He refers to giving in verse 2, and praying in verse 5, and today, fasting. Now, why would Jesus need to, to bring this up? Why would Jesus need to speak on this particular subject? It's because in Jesus' day, there was a group of influential religious leaders, a prominent group among the Jewish population in Rome, possessing a high degree of prestige and a high degree of weight among the peoples. And this group was called the Pharisees. One thing we know about the Pharisees as we watch the interactions of our Lord Jesus with these, with these Pharisees throughout the Gospels, they loved the adoration of people. They highly valued their preeminent and distinguished position in the community and sought to maintain it. And to that end, rather than simply focusing on worshiping and honoring God, rather than putting their energy and effort into the exaltation of God and His glory, rather than pointing the attention of the people in God's direction... They instead performed their deeds of piety, their feats of religious devotion, out in the open for all to see. And that's the point. This wasn't some incidental observation as somebody's walking by and they just happen to see someone doing something religious. They just happen to see a Pharisee or someone giving to the needy. Or they just happen to see someone praying. Nope. This morning we will see that the Pharisees actually made it a point to ensure that the crowds would see them perform these feats of obedience. And it's against this tendency that Jesus speaks. This tendency to seek glory for themselves, glory for ourselves, rather than pointing people to the Lord, pointing people to the glory of the Lord, that Jesus warned us with this word at the beginning of chapter 6 verse 1 beware be always on guard be ever alert to both the subtle temptations and the overt temptation to direct the glory that belongs rightly only to god to us be cautious of this ever-present desire of the flesh Beware of practicing our righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. 
So let's just step back again. I want to make some, some clarifications here. It is, the issue is not the practice of righteousness, okay? As Christians, as followers, as disciples of Jesus by grace through faith in him as Lord and Savior, we are commanded to live righteous, obedient, holy lives. We are commanded to practice righteousness. The Apostle John made that clear in 1 John chapter 2 when he said, if you know that Jesus is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. It is the necessary byproduct of loving Jesus that we become like him in our righteousness. And Jesus, teaching his disciples in the Gospel of John, made it abundantly clear over and over again. In John chapter 14, 15, he said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And in John 15, 14, he said, If you are my friend, you are my friends if you do what I command you. So it's not the practice of righteousness. Christians ought to practice righteousness. It's not even the practice of righteousness in the sight of other people. Jesus made this abundantly clear as well. Earlier on in the sermon, in Matthew chapter 5, when he said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You see, if you are a true follower of Jesus, your life will, in ever-increasing measure, reflect by good works and obedience to the commands of Christ, righteousness. And you will practice righteousness or labor to practice righteousness in every facet of your life. And if this is the case, then it will, to some degree or other, be unavoidable that people will see and note how you live your life. And so we live in such a way all the time that if and when people see your righteousness, they give glory to their Father in heaven. And that last line is key. Where does the glory go? The glory goes to our Father who is in heaven. It's one thing to live to and for the glory of God, to live obediently so that God is honored and exalted and lifted high by everything that you say and everything you do. It's another to live in such a way that we shift and transfer the glory that rightly and only belongs to our Heavenly Father in our own direction. To seek for oneself glory and honor. This is what Jesus is addressing in these verses. The pharisaical tendency that is present in every single one of us to perform good deeds, righteous acts, not for the glory of God, not that people might see and give praise to God, but instead that people might notice, adore, congratulate, and applaud us. And listen, throughout Scripture, you will note that this is one of, if not the most wicked and heinous of sins, seeking to redirect glory in any other direction other than God's. It's glory thievery. When we try to ascribe to ourselves that which belongs only to God, or subtly labor to direct others to, to ascribe to us what belongs only to God. And this act, this tendency, this temptation is something we ought always to beware of, something we ought always to vigilantly guard against. You see, glory belongs to one and one alone. 
our Lord and our Father in heaven. And it is left to us to both recognize this fact and ascribe to Him all glory. It is left to us to avoid seeking glory for ourselves. To avoid ascribing to other people, other humans, what belongs rightfully to the Lord. It is commanded by our Lord Jesus Christ that we beware of practicing our righteousness in order to be seen. And seen in this context refers to the desire for admiration, spectacle, the desire to impress others so that their applause is directed at us. And we are called, as God's people, to stop up every pipeline that funnels glory in any direction other than the Lord himself. And so when it came to the Pharisees, when Jesus is, is speaking here, when it comes to the Pharisees, when, when it came to their giving, according to Jesus, they sounded metaphorical trumpets when they gave. See that in verse 2? When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Now Jesus is using an extreme example here because there is actually no historical evidence that when the Pharisees would walk uh, that the Pharisees would walk through a procession of trumpeters as they approach the offering box. In using this picture, Jesus is sounding uh, using this picture of sounding the trumpet, Jesus is making it, making it clear that the simple announcement of your giving so that other people might praise you is equivalent to, to renting a traveling troop of trumpeters to blast pomp and circumstance as you drop your offering into either the plate or the hand of the poor and the needy. When it came to prayer, as we see in verse 5, these same religious leaders pretended and feigned concern for true devotion to the Lord, but again, they were really seeking the praise, human praise, and so they, they loved, look at, uh, verse 5, they loved to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. It's not the standing to pray. It's not the act of praying out loud in the synagogue that's being rebuked here. It's the pharisaical practice, once again, of looking around, trying to find that location, that prime spot in the synagogue, and then shuffling over to that prime spot and positioning yourself there so that everyone present could, could and would both hear and see the Pharisee in question pour forth their eloquent, eloquent verbose, and well-rehearsed prayers. They also... In, not just standing in the synagogue, but the verse 5 tells us that they also love to stand and pray at the street corners. Again, it's not praying in public, nor is it praying out loud in public that's the issue here, but rather the pharisaical practice of planting themselves at the busiest intersections so that everyone would see them, so that everyone would hear them as they poured out prayers you would have been hard-pressed in this day to find any Pharisee praying in some back alley or some empty, quiet street. It all just happened to be in the busiest places at the busiest times using their loudest voices for all the passers-by to hear. And they even went so far as 
to make it seem as though their devotion to the Lord, their dedication to the Lord was so strong that they were bursting with desire to pray that they couldn't even make it to the synagogue or the temple. They just had to pray, and so they burst out in prayer on the streets. But Jesus is addressing the state of their hearts. It's all a sham, he's saying. They were doing it simply to be seen, verse 5, to be seen by others. This is their heart condition. And this, this type of person, Jesus labels them multiple times in our text this morning as hypocrites. That word in context means play actors. The hypocrite cared more about, the hypocrite cares more about the praise of other people than they do their approach to and address of the Lord himself. They prized and prize the admiration, the opinion, the respect of the crowd more than they do their relationship with the God who rules over heaven and earth. They cherished and cherish their reputation among others more than the honor of the God they claim to love and serve. To this type of person... Past or present, our Lord Jesus declared, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. What reward is that, you ask? Exactly what they wanted. The cheap and momentary thrill of applause from the most fickle and unsatisfiable of all creatures, humans. And just know that the applause of humans never lasts long and it can switch immediately in a moment and the same people that were applauding you yesterday will be trying seeking your life today and so now once again jesus refers to another common religious practice of the day and he chastised the hypocrites who only participated in that exercise so that they might be seen by others the custom in pra- the custom in question fasting now just so we know, or we've pulled out and we're, we're discussing the main point here. The main point of this text is the same as the main points in the previous two sections. The previous sections on giving and praying. Don't perform your deeds so that other people will see you, but rather do those deeds in private, if that is your temptation, that to, to gain the applause of other people, do those deeds in private so that God is honored and God is exalted and God is glorified by what you do. But seeing that as fasting isn't referred to all that often in the New Testament and seeing as we, we don't, we're not going to be covering it, I don't know, in the foreseeable future, anytime I can think, it might be good to explore the practice a little bit, understand why people fasted, whether we ought to fast today, before returning to the selfish practices of the Pharisees as they fasted. So, I want you first to notice in in verse 16 that Jesus uh, uses the same phrase to open this teaching as he had when, when referencing giving and praying. And he said, when you fast. You see that? When you fast. Not if... It's not if you give, it's not if you pray, it's when you give, when you pray. It's not if you fast, it's when you fast. But here's a problem here. Jesus assumed that his people will fast. However, he did not 
leave us any sort of rules as to the timing of fasts or the seasons of a fast or the frequency of a fast or how long a fast should go, but he instead left such considerations up to the believer. If he had ordained times and regulations for fasting, it might very well become, that, uh, become like Pharisee, the Pharisees. As we performed a duty without any heart or any devotion. As we performed a duty simply because we were supposed to and prescribed on a certain day to do it. And so, Christian, it's left to you as a disciple of Christ to fast voluntarily. Now some might ask, okay, well, uh, I do fast. What does it mean to fast? Every year, every year, pastor, every year I start a fast. Uh, At Lent, I start a fast. Now, whether I finish that fast, that's a different story. But every year at Lent, I start a fast. I mean, I always begin something. Last year, for example, I gave up social media. I fasted from social media. You ever notice how when we fast from social media, when I used to partake in social media, when someone was going to fast from social media, they made it a big, a big hullabaloo that they were going off social media. Everybody, everybody, I want you to see, I want you to know right now, I am taking a fast from social media. You will not see me or hear from me on here for the next 40 days. Hmm. To be seen by other people. That seems a little odd, doesn't it? But it's not just social media. Sometimes I hear people say, I'm going to fast from television for 40 days. My all-time favorite, I'm going to fast from chocolate. All right, good. However, while these might be valuable practices, they are not fasting. You should switch the word. We water down what the word here means when we use the word fasting for such things. We We ought to say something like, I'm going to abstain from social media for a 40-day period, or I'm going to abstain from television for a while, or I'm going to abstain from chocolate because it muddies the meaning of the word fast. Fast is a very specific word referring to a specific thing. When you fast from, you don't fast from social media. That's not what a fast is. To fast in this and pretty much every context throughout Scripture means to abstain from food for a limited time for spiritual purposes. Okay? To abstain from food for a limited time for spiritual purposes. Now, don't miss the points of this definition. Biblical fasting is the abstaining from food, as in what we eat. It is the foregoing of meals and snacks and treats for a period of time. And in that time, as a result of our foregoing this food, guess what happens? We get hungry. Physically hungry. However, biblical fasting is not simply the refraining from food. Like you can't go on a diet and say, you know what, I'm going to fast on... Monday and Wednesday in my diet and call that a biblical fast. It's not. A biblical fast is the abstaining from food for a spiritual purpose. For a fast to be a fast in the way that Jesus is referencing, it must be, once again, the abstaining from food for some spiritual purposes. So, 
if we look through Scripture, what are some of the reasons or spiritual purposes for fasting recorded throughout Scripture? What are some of the durations and and lengths of these fasts? What else did the practitioner do along with fasting? I think taking kind of a, a look through Scripture at some of the reasons for fasting might be beneficial for us as maybe perhaps some of us commit to fasting in the future or in the present. So we're going to look at six, six reasons or six things that um, considerations about fasting or reasons for fasting. So the first one is that God's people fasted when experiencing great grief or inner turmoil. God's people fasted when experiencing great grief and inner turmoil. Great grief and inner turmoil. A few examples. King David. After his wicked and sinful actions against both Uriah, you remember Uriah? Uriah was one of David's mighty men, one of the men who protected David as King Saul was seeking David's life. Uriah risked his life defending David as David fled. And now King David, because he is attracted to Uriah's wife, commits adultery with her and then ensures that Uriah is killed in battle. And the response of the Lord to this wicked deed comes through the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel chapter 12, where we read these words. Because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. And on the seventh day the child died. In his grief, in his inner turmoil, in his heart ache, David fasted for seven days. And in this this context, David's external and physical grief coincided by fasting his internal distress as his physical pain of hunger coincided with the heartache of losing a child. And so David in grief fasted. And again, David fasted in grief over the death of King Saul, the king who sought to kill him on a number of occasions. And he also, at the very same time, fasted in grief over the death of Saul's son, his best friend, and his close companion, Jonathan. As we read in 2 Samuel chapter 1, David took hold of his own clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and Jonathan, his son. And for all the people of the Lord, and for, all, and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. David fasted and wept and mourned in grief. <clears throat> and, and all the men joined him. Now, in the previous fast, you saw that David fasted for seven days. In this one, it didn't go seven days, but he fasted until evening. See, 
Fasting, for whatever reason, doesn't have any length or span of time attached to it by command or by divine fiat, except for one instance, the Day of Atonement. We'll get to that one in a, in a, in a, in a, in a few minutes. <clears throat> but it's up to you, believer, to decide how much time is necessary for you to fast and grieve. One more. We could, this one could go into multiple zones, but I put it in this grief zone. Hannah, <clears throat> the wife of Eli the priest. She had no children, the scripture tells us, because the Lord had closed her womb. But she desperately hoped for children. And along with her hope and along with her childlessness, Eli's other wife mercilessly provoked her and irritated her because of her childless state. And in her grief, she went up to the house of the Lord. She went up to the temple of God, weeping, or to the tabernacle, weeping. And 1 Samuel 1.7 says, she would not eat. And as she fasted and prayed to the Lord for a child, eventually, this This grief and this prayer and this fasting all led to the Lord answering her prayer. In 1 Samuel 1.20, we read, In due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. And and the Lord didn't just answer her prayer for a child. He answered her prayer for a child by giving her Samuel, a towering figure in Israel's history as priest over the nations, a son who even went so far as to be blessed by the Lord with the privilege of anointing the kings of Israel. So, are you grieving at this point in your life? Are you grieving some great loss? Are you enduring something right now, a season of great inner turmoil? There is a long history in Scripture of fasting in our grief by God's people. Perhaps, maybe, if you are in a season of grief, or the next time you endure or experience a particularly heart-wrenching event in your life, you might meet it with fasting to go along with your weeping, your mourning, and your prayer. So God's people fasted when experiencing great grief and inner turmoil, and they also fasted at the sight of imminent or impending danger. God's people fasted at the sight of imminent or impending danger. Imminent or impending danger. King Jehoshaphat, when news reached him that a great multitude, a great army had left their lands to initiate and rise up in battle against Israel, when the king recognized that Israel had no chance of defeating a horde of such size and multitude, the text tells us in 2 Chronicles 20 that he was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and he proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And so you see fasting and prayer are combined with seeking help from the Lord and seeking the Lord himself. And the Lord looked down on this fast and heard the prayers of the fast and spoke through someone named Jahaziel saying this in 2 Chronicles 20.15, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. Be not afraid. 
And do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. And the Lord, in his mercy towards Israel, turned these throngs of soldiers who were intent on taking over Jerusalem against each other so that they warred against themselves and destroyed one another. And so, in 2 Chronicles 20, we read this. When Judah came to the watchtower of the wilderness, they looked towards the horde, and behold, there were dead bodies lying on the ground. None had escaped. You see, the people of Judah, recognizing the gravity of their situation, fasted, all of them, and focused their prayers on the Lord. They sought the Lord in this time time of fasting, and they pleaded with Him for deliverance. They pleaded with Him for redemption from this situation, and the Lord answered them. And later on, another example... After after their sin had led the Lord to send them into exile for 70 years, the Jewish peoples who had been scattered throughout the Babylonian Empire were permitted to return, to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the city, to rebuild the walls. But a number of adversaries rose up to, to halt their efforts. And they used every avenue, every resource at their disposal to halt the rebuilding efforts. These adversaries started sending letters to the king. And we read one of the letters in Ezra chapter 4. It says this. This is the letter that they sent to King Artaxerxes. The Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls are finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Therefore we send and inform the king, you will find that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces. And that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. That is why this city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. And such relentless opposition as this to the rebuilding efforts continued day in and day out for many years. And so Ezra as he called on exiles from all over the empire to return to Jerusalem, as he called for the Levites throughout the empire to return to Jerusalem in order to establish, reestablish, and lead the people in worship of the Lord in Jerusalem, he understood the dangers of the journey. Enemies all around that sought to harm the Israelites as they returned. And so what does Ezra do? He calls a fast. He calls a fast among those in the city. And in Ezra chapter 8, we read this. Verses 21 to 23. I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. Since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted 
and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. So you see, fasting helped them to have more focused imploring and petitioning to the Lord, and the Lord listened. This fast, called for by Ezra, was designed to bring before the Lord one request, one petition, the protection of the returning exiles. And the entire group in the city took part in the fast, and they all prayed in unison in an extremely focused manner for the Lord's oversight of returning Levites and exiles. And wonder of wonders, glory of glories, our Lord is faithful. He answered their prayer. But it's not just um, King Jehoshaphat and Ezra. Another example, final one in this section, is Esther. If you have watched VeggieTales or you have read Esther, Esther is one of the more, I think it's one of the more read, well-read and popular books in Scripture. It's a beautiful narrative. We read of Esther, the young Jewish girl, who was selected by the Babylonian king to be queen. And upon hearing from Mordecai, Mordecai is the man who raised her after her parents died, that the wicked Haman had set in motion a plan to eradicate the Jewish peoples from the empire altogether, she agreed to enter into the presence of the king to ask him for help. Now that might not seem like a big deal, but you've got to know that at this time, entering into the presence of the king was no simple task. To enter into the presence of the Babylonian king without, uninvited, without an invitation, was to take your very life into your own hands. As Esther made clear in chapter 4, verse 11 of Esther, she said this, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except for the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king for 30 days. Meaning, who knows? You've got you to put yourself in Esther's position. Who knows if the king even cares to see me anymore? Esther's thinking. Perhaps he's grown tired of her, and like the previous queen has fallen out of favor with him. He hadn't called for her in a month. And if she were to enter his presence to solicit his assistance, maybe this might be the reason he's looking for to simply eliminate her. It's a terrifying event. Esther, though, understanding all the facts, knowing that at this moment she is Israel's only human hope, said to Mordecai, in Esther chapter 4, verse 16, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night and day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. And so the Jewish peoples fasted and prayed in concert for the same Thing. And Esther, after that time, presented herself to the king, and her presence pleased the king. 
And he held out his royal scepter. He inclined her ear, his ear to her request. And eventually that dirty dog, Haman, was put to death. So these instances of fasting were all undertaken on the national level. And they were dedicated to petitioning the Lord for his aid in times of impending danger. And we can bring this down, however, to your individual lives as well, or our communal lives as a church. Is there any impending danger in your life? Is there something you need to pray for with a greater effectiveness, a greater focus, a greater clarity? Perhaps you might fast and pray for the Lord's help. And maybe, maybe, at this time in the world's history, as fear reigns throughout the world because of the coronavirus, perhaps we, perhaps we, God's people, ought to fast and pray for the Lord's protection and elimination of either the virus or our fear of the virus. That he would bring us to increased focus on him, the God of loyal, steadfast, faithful love, who has proven his love for us, proven his care for us, proven his oversight for us over and over and over, most notably in sending his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So God's people fasted when experiencing great grief and inner turmoil. God's people fasted at the sight of imminent or impending danger. God's people also fasted in repentance and sorrow for sin. God's people fasted in repentance for sorrow and in repentance and sorrow for sin. So, the only mandated fast in scripture was on the day of atonement as recorded in Leviticus chapter 16 when the stains of Israel's sin were cleansed from the most holy place in the tabernacle or temple. And the fast of the people on this day, the fast that is specifically, this fast was specifically focused on repentance and sorrow for their sinful deeds. We read it in Leviticus. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the seventh month, you shall afflict yourselves and do no work. Afflict here is another way of saying you shall fast. You see, fasting is, if you're going to do it, you will notice and you will find this out, fasting is no pleasant activity. Rather, it is a painful denial of our natural appetites. And so is referred to here, as well as other places throughout the Old Testament, as an affliction, an affliction of one's self. We also read about King Ahab. King Ahab, one of the most wicked kings in Israel's history, after hearing the Lord's word come to him through the prophet Isaiah, or prophet Elijah, who declared this, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel." Those are some terrifying words. And Ahab, upon hearing this condemnation from the mouth of Elijah in 1 Kings 21, 27 to 29, tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. 
And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days. Ahab's repentance moved the Lord. And again, we return to Ezra. Ezra fasted and prayed for Israel as he mourned over their sinfulness. Not necessarily simply his own, but he also mourned and fasted over other people's sinfulness. As we read in Ezra chapter 10, Ezra withdrew from the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehohanan, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. Ezra fasted and mourned over the faithlessness of his fellow countrymen. Perhaps, maybe, we might fast in mourning over the faithlessness of many so-called pastors in our day, many so-called leaders and church leaders in our own day, many false teachers who lead people astray in our own day. And finally, for this section, as the prophet Jonah preached in the streets of Nineveh, that most wicked and brutally sinful city, filled with brutal and sinful people, He said this, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And here's what happened as a result. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them all the way to the least of them. And the word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, he removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and satin ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to the Lord, mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Perhaps the single greatest awakening to the Lord in the history of our planet was met with fasting, with weeping, with mourning over the sins of that they had committed. So, in your life, are there sins in your life that you are mourning over, that you weep over, that you must repent of? Perhaps, maybe, a time of fasting, a time of afflicting yourself with abstinence from food to go along with your time of prayer might be beneficial for your growth in repentance. Number four, in the New Testament, we see God's people fasting as they wait in expectation for the fulfillment of God's promise. We see God's people fasting as they wait in expectation for the fulfillment of the Lord's promise. Fulfillment of the Lord's promise. We see Anna, the prophetess, in Luke chapter 2. At a healthy 84 years of age, expectantly waiting 
for the arrival of Messiah. And Luke tells us she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. She was a woman who was eagerly awaiting and eagerly expecting the fulfillment of the Lord's promise of Messiah and so fasted and prayed night and day as she awaited this most wonderful occurrence. Number five, we see God's people fast before they take on an important task. Before they take on an important task task and we see this in both the church and christ himself in matthew chapter 4 verse 2 we read after fasting 40 days and 40 nights he was hungry our lord jesus fasted before he took on the important task as preparation for his earthly ministry before concentrating his energies into the mission of proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God and laying down his life to save all who would come to him in trust and in faith. And along with Jesus, the prophets at the church in Antioch worshipped and fasted as we read in Acts chapter 13, verses 2 and 3. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So they fasted and prayed, which led the Holy Spirit to tell them to set apart for them Barnabas and Saul. And then they fasted and prayed before sending Barnabas and Saul off to do their ministry. So people in the New, God's people in the, New, in the New Testament fasted before they took on an important task. And lastly, God's people fasted when appointing leaders in the church. God's people fasted when appointing leaders in the church. Paul and Barnabas, when performing the tremendously uh, important task of appointing elders and leaders in the churches, spent time fasting and praying beforehand. As we see in Acts 14, 23, it says this, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. So as you can see, fasting was and has been of enormous importance throughout the history of God's people, from the Old Testament all the way to the early church. And while we can't, like I said at the beginning, set any hard and fast rules about lengths of time and frequency and seasons um, or reasons, hopefully you see the value of fasting all throughout Scripture. And you see that there are fasts until evening. There are seven-day fasts. There are three-day fasts. Some for repentance, some for mourning. Uh, some for choosing leaders, some fasts exclude water and drink, some fasts just exclude food. There's all sorts of ways in which to fast. And just, so, just historically speaking, the early church also kept up the practice of fasting. We see this in something called the Didache. The Didache was an early church manual for worship, written in the first century and used by Christians in the first century. And in the Didache, it is declared that when you are preparing for baptism, 
says this, Before the baptism, let him that baptizes and him that is baptized fast, and any others who are able. You shall order him that is baptized to fast a day or two before. So Didache went a little bit further and mandated it. I wouldn't have gone that far. Um, but you can see that fasting was an important consideration. Fasting was and is for many up into our own day, many believers up into our own day, a normal part of life for the servant of the Lord. And it's linked with prayers. And it's always assisted in the intensity and the focus on one's prayers as they deny their fleshly appetites in favor of a laser-like convergence of one's body and one's spirit in prayer to the Lord. Now, this is another area of consideration that we ought to look at. This idea of fasting as a denial of our appetites. A denial of our appetites in service and prayer to the Lord. You see, the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Corinthians said, I will not be dominated by anything. He also said, I discipline my body and keep it under control. And in his letter to Titus, Paul condemned the Cretan habit. Cretan were the names of the people on the island of Crete. He condemned the Cretan habit of being what he terms lazy gluttons. In this context, the glutton is the one who is guided by their stomach, who is led around by their appetites, who rarely, if ever, deny themselves for spiritual reasons for the sake of moving closer to the Lord in some way. And in our culture, it must be said, it's not, a, it's not said enough, that food has become an obsession. I mean, it's, it's one thing to know the place of food in our lives. Food is, to be sure, a good gift from God. It is a gift that sustains us, a gift that keeps us alive. But does it not seem that we have taken food to an entirely new level in our culture? How many commercials you see on TV or billboards out there or or commercials on the radio that are all designed to get your mouth watering. Get to the restaurant. Get that plate of food in front of you when you see the sizzling steak from the keg or the wonderful burger that is topped just the way you like it or even that wonderfully decadent Greek salad. I mean, it's all so good, isn't it? From top to bottom, food in our culture, along with a number of others, has become an idol. And in light of this situation, never has fasting been such a blessed spiritual practice for us to relearn and recapture. The denial of our appetites, detaching for a time from the cultural idolatry of food, directing our attention to the one who deserves everything, Think about it. In our culture, we eat when we're happy. We turn to food when we're sad. We turn to food when we're lonely. We turn to food when we need comfort. We even have a name for that, right? Comfort food. We know it's a problem when food has become the goal. Food has become the aim. Food has become the end that we seek. These are warped priorities. And this is what humans have done to every good gift of God. 
We take the gift that is designed to move us past that gift to the thanking, the praising, and the finding comfort in the giver of the gift, and we put that weight on the gift itself, and that is a weight that the gift is not designed to bear. It's the very definition of idolatry to love the gift more than the giver. And perhaps it's time for us, who've been sucked into this culture of food idolatry, to fast and to pray. So how ought we to view the food in our life? Well, see it as the blessing that it is. Know that it is often the source of great joy as we share it with family and friends in gratitude to the Lord. However, in our culture, along with a number of other more affluent countries, food has gone way beyond being a blessing. And we have, as we do with all of God's good gifts, warped it so that it at times becomes a curse. Our obsession with food, our obsession with overeating, with always wanting it, has led to a variety of physical problems and physical issues and deaths and hospitalizations in our society. And as you read Scripture, you realize self-control is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit, right? Self-control ought to be practiced in every area of our lives, but it is generally rarely talked about in connection to our idolatrous relationship to food, our idolatrous relationship to overconsumption. Now, listen, the idea, it's, it's even got to the point where the idea of fasting is for many a laughable concept. And even now, I would venture to say that even now, there are a number of you that are listening who are probably listing the reasons why you cannot or should not fast. Let me just say this. A good fast is beneficial. Are you a slave to your appetites? Do you live on bread alone or by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God? Is your hunger for the Lord greater than the rumblings of your stomach? See, fasting and praying reveals that we are not being choked by and controlled by the cares, the riches, and the pleasures of this life. Now, again, just to make sure we know this, there is nothing wrong, absolutely nothing wrong with food in and of itself, with any sort of food. Food is the good gift of God. The problem is not the food. The problem is our idolizing of the food eating when we're not hungry, jumping at food every time we crave it, or eating to the point where all we can do is sit around regretting the fact that we ate so much. Fasting teaches us that our cravings are not our gods. As we let them go unfulfilled, as we deny them for a time, and as we deny them, we turn to the Lord in prayer. We don't hear this brought up a lot, but it was brought up more often in yesteryear. The Puritan pastors of the old days made such denials of appetites, denials of our cravings, a regular component of their preaching, and perhaps we need to to reestablish that. And one such pastor in a series that I've been reading, his name is George Swinnick, is, wrote, a, wrote a volume on how the Christian exercises themselves to godliness in all sorts of different ways. 
in all the facets of one's life. And he discussed the issue of how a Christian exercises godliness in reference to food. And this is what he wrote. Your duty as a believer seeking godliness is to be temperate as to the quantity of your diet. God gave man food to further, not hinder him, in his general and particular calling. General and particular calling means uh, your work in the world, like your job, and your work in the mission field as a, as, a, as a follower of Christ. He goes on, And surely they sin, who feed till, like fatted horses, they are unfit for service. It will be a sordid bondage if we suffer them, meaning our appetites, if we suffer our appetites to have dominion over us instead of their being our servants. To become our masters, we are to use our appetites soberly and moderately, not to gluttony and excess. It is an abominable shame to a saint to be a slave to the beast in him, to be a slave to their sensitive appetite. How contrary to religion it is to have your kitchen as your church, your table as your altar, and your belly for your God. And also, the great reformer John Calvin, referring to fasting, wrote that fasting is pleasing to God because it trains us, in, in, uh, in line with what Swinnick said, it trains us to abstinence in terms of eating less. It trains us to subdue the lusts of our flesh. It excites us to earnestness in prayer and testifies to our repentance. So you see Calvin here, he said, fasting helps us to subdue the lusts of the flesh. That's key. Because there's not many areas in life in which we labor and strive to subdue the lusts of our flesh. When we want something, we go and we get that thing. And fasting is the beginning, according to Calvin, of a long process in which we labor and strive for increasing self-control, for the denial of our appetites, for the taking up of our cross and following him, right? Jesus said it, we deny ourselves daily and we take up our cross and follow him. And one of the ways that we deny ourselves is in our refusal to be slaves to our flesh. So now, if you're thinking about the possibility of personal fasting, after all that we've just set forth, the Lord Jesus now sets for you a principle. Do not fast in order to be seen by others. Don't let your fasting, which is designed to be a denial of your appetites, be simply the mode by which you fulfill another appetite, the applause of people. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't be like the hypocrites, Jesus said in verse 16, who disfigure their faces. The idea there is spoiling or marring their appearance, neglecting their appearance so that others know that something is up. You can imagine the scene, right? Whoa, ho, ho, Sally, you look terrible. Are you okay? Yes, yes, I'm fine. I'm just a little bit hungry. Well, why don't you go get something to eat? I mean, there's a Tim Hortons on every block in every city in, in Canada. Why don't you go to a Tim Hortons and grab yourself a muffin or a donut or a coffee or whatever? Oh, no, 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 no. I can't eat. You see, 
I'm fasting. Oh, Sally, Sally, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said anything. You are just so spiritual. I wish I could be more like you, Sally. Now, we all have to be careful about this. That's an obviously over-the-top experience, but we all have to be careful about this because the culture that we live in is one of self-exhibition. Selfies with the filters on them, making sure that all of your blemishes are gone. Everything we do and everything we think about and everything we eat posted on social media for all to see, along with every other type of self-promotion we can think of. And here, Jesus, our Lord, comes to us and snatches us by the collar of our shirt and pulls us back and says, hey, don't do things in order to be seen by other people. Your Father in heaven is the only one you ought to be concerned about, the only audience that you ought to be doing and performing your spiritual deeds for. Whereas the hypocrites are calling attention to themselves by fasting and looking miserable and looking gloomy and looking sullen and unhappy so that everyone around them might think, whoa, look how spiritual they are, you abstain from such temptations. In fact, look what Jesus says next. When you fast, do what you normally do. Anoint your head and wash your face. Meaning, don't call any attention to yourself. Make sure you smell good. Take a shower. Comb your hair. Wash your face. Don't give any hint of your fast to anyone. You're not fasting for their approval or their applause anyway. And then Jesus makes a wonderful, wonderful statement. God never fails to notice true, heartfelt devotion to him. Never fails to notice it. Never fails to listen to the desperate and focused prayers of his children. He never fails to see true, heartfelt deeds performed in obedience to him. And when your concern is the Lord and the Lord alone... In all of your spiritual duties, look at what Jesus says in the last sentence of our text. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Devote yourself, your deeds, your gratitude, your dedication, honor, and glory, all of it to the Lord. And perhaps... If you're enduring a season of grief and turmoil, if you are enduring a season of imminent or impending danger, if you are in a place where you feel desperate to repent, or you're waiting in expectation for the Lord to move in your life, or you're trying to figure out what the Lord has next for you in life, if you feel so called, fast and pray. Focus on the Lord privately. I mean, there might be times when we as a church call a fast together. And who knows? Maybe that's something we should look into now that we've covered this text together. And that's legitimate. We see that throughout the scripture. But if you're going to fast on your own, may God be exalted in your life. May God be the audience the only audience who sees your fasting in secret and who rewards you as the God who sees 
and loves to reward. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, we praise you and we thank you for the words of our Lord, the words of our Savior Jesus. And we pray that you would give us the strength to fight the major battle, the major temptation um, referenced by the text this morning. That we would not do our spiritual duties and practice our spiritual devotion in order to be seen by others, to be applauded by them. Lord, help us to do all of these things for you as our only audience. Let our hearts be such that all we want is to glorify you. All we want is to honor you. All that we want is for all exaltation to flow in your direction. May we never, ever, ever stand in the way of you being the one to whom glory is ascribed. And Lord, I pray for uh, us as believers in a, in a, in a food-obsessed culture. Lord, I don't know if you how and when and why and for what reason we ought to fast, but I know that you tell us that we ought to fast. So I pray that you would be working in each and every one of our lives, revealing to us um, the reason that we ought to fast. And I pray that you would give us the strength to deny our appetites and to reveal full devotion to you to reveal that we don't live by bread alone, but that we live by every word that proceeds from your mouth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.